Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I'm so excited to introduce this week's guest. I've got Dr. Robbie Hart on the line. Robbie is the director of the William Brown Center at the Missouri Botanical Gardens in St. Louis, Missouri, where he leads a team of researchers dedicated to the study of useful plants, understanding the relationships between humans, plants, and their environment, the conservation of plant species, and the preservation of traditional knowledge for the benefit of future generations. Robbie's research is on high elevation plant ecology. So we're talking very high mountains in the Himalayas. He works on climate change and ethnobotany, and he's especially interested in these three areas or where these three areas intersect. Robbie and I have a lot in common. We're both members of the Society for Economic Botany and the Explorers Club, and he's just an all around great guy. I'm just so excited to have you on the show, Robbie. Thank you, Cassie. So why don't we start with just a general question of what drew you to do research in climate change and what 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 really interests you in that area? Well, actually, that's a that's a really interesting question. I think that, in fact, I was first drawn to working in mountains. I grew up in mountains on the Olympic Peninsula in uh, the northwest corner of Washington state, and I was drawn to that environment for um, for a lot of reasons to the environmental gradient that we're able to see in mountains is one that supports this incredible biodiversity uh, the slope creates these little niches which support different species and that's something that is interesting to ecologists but it's also just interesting to us as as humans with biophilia and so i knew i wanted to keep working in mountains and when I asked myself what the really burning questions were for uh, mountain biology, climate change absolutely stands out as one of the most important. Mountainous areas are considered one of the areas that's being affected most quickly by climate change. Um, Mm -hmm. There's actually uh, been very good support that higher elevation areas actually are seeing the effects of warming faster. Uh, There are also, of course, if you're in a snowbound mountainous area, precipitation is extremely important to how the seasons work. And so precipitation changes have big effects. Um, And that's especially true in the Himalayas, which people have called the third pole, because uh, they're this important cold area that's um, dramatically affected by climate change and really essential to setting weather patterns and patterns of ocean currents around the world. Mm, Yeah. And so I think what's unique about your work is that in addition to studying the the biota, the diversity of plant life in these locations, you're also working with local people to better understand how these changes impact their livelihoods. And as this is a show all about food, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about traditional gardening, traditional food resource procurement or 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 um, agriculture and and what are some of the interesting things that you found sure well most of my research is uh as you said is done in the himalayan area so um up there at the elevations that we work at there isn't much gardening going on so this is between 4,000 and 5,000 meters above sea level are where we're studying alpine plants so that's plants that occur above the tree line 
Yeah. And that's, um, so that's between, uh, let's see, 13,000 and 16,500 feet above sea level. It's um, actually lushly populated with plant species, but is pretty inhospitable to most of the things we rely on for food uh, in terms of gardening plants. Um, and we can get back to gardening because it's a really interesting question and at slightly lower elevations. So there mm -hmm. are these rich and interesting Himalayan home gardens. But up in the Alpine area, um, a lot of the plants that grow there are really important to people medicinally. So, um, of course, food and medicine are intersecting categories, as mm -hmm. you know, you you've said, and lots of other yeah. guests have said much more eloquently than I could. Um, so, a lot of these are used as uh, food medicines or functional foods. Um, but they're also uh, important areas as pastures. So, pastures, of course tend to not be where the trees are. They're in open areas. So this alpine area above the tree line is important for pasturing uh, famously yaks in the Himalayan area, but also cows and yak-cow hybrids, which are actually much more common in some places than yeah. yaks per se. And um, so essentially a yak is a way of uh, converting a bunch of grass species and sedge species that uh, dominate this alpine area, and as well as little herbs and things that they eat by the by, into protein for human consumption, whether it's meat or butter or cheese. And people notice these downstream effects. So I've had people um, tell me that one of the effects they see of climate change in these high alpine pastures is the grass, the composition of grass and grassy species that includes sedges. Um, as the species composition changes, that they can see changes in the health and happiness of the uh, yaks and cows that they're grazing in the area, mm -hmm. and that they can taste those changes coming through chemically into the, uh, especially the, the butter that's derived. Mm -hmm. uh, yak butter is a really important cooking ingredient that makes its way into traditional Tibetan tea and Tibetan dishes, um, and uh, probably is more important than, than the, the cheese or the meat. Um, and there are also other sort of downstream effects uh, on this grazing pastoralist culture. So in Nepal, where we were doing some work outside Manaslu, I had a grazer tell me that he attributed climate change driven changes in this composition of grasses and sedges to changes in the areas that the famous Himalayan blue sheep uh, were able to graze. That because the Himalayan blue sheep were um, moving to other valleys, this was uh, resulting in changes in where snow leopards were. And because of the changes in where snow leopards were hunting and when they were able to hunt blue sheep, he had to move his yak herds, uh, which are also uh, predated upon by snow leopards. Um, wow. and I just thought this was an amazing thing. Um, in, that, of course, an ecologist would love to be able to see with this, you know, very long, detailed, uh, systematic field work, but which you can also see as a local observer who has this direct livelihood incentive to care about the process. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a, a great picture you can show of, of how intricately linked each stage is in these in these fragile ecosystems. And 
they're becoming more fragile because of, of climate change. Going, going back to a couple of things that you described, first of all, when you say blue sheep, are these actually blue or why are they called blue sheep? Because I know that was the first thing that jumped into my mind. Are, there, are they colored blue or is that just the local name for them? No, the sheep are actually more uh, gray than blue. Um, but they are uh, famous as a Himalayan species because they are the main food source for the snow leopard, one of the charismatic megafauna of the Himalayas. And they're, uh, in fact, featured pretty prominently in the um, book by Peter Matheson, The Snow Leopard. And I want to also circle back to the utility of yak. Um, and I've what I've learned about the the importance of yak has honestly been through presentations that you and other scientists have delivered at some of our annual meetings. And it's just fascinating to me um, what a critical role they play in, as a local food source. Now, when most people think about an herbal tea, the idea of putting a butter into a tea sounds a bit different than what we're used to. We might have a cream or a milk or cow's milk. But what is yak butter tea like? Can you describe it to us and how is it prepared and what types of teas? Are we talking about um, caffeinated Camellia sinensis or is this more of like local um, local herbs that are used in their teas? Oh, what a, what a great question. Um, and this is something that's just so fun to talk about. And it's, um, you know, it's not something that I've studied a lot myself because the tea plant itself doesn't actually grow here. Um, and so there's this wonderful sort of long story of how the tea makes its way from these sort of humid low areas. Um, and these would be areas um, more like in uh, sort of southern Yunnan province in China. So um, the, or even in more like what we think of as Southeast Asia, the Himalayan foothills where they meet with Southeast Asia. Um, so I, I think kind of about the you know, very end of Apocalypse Now or something, the very headwaters of these mm. rivers like the Mekong and the Irrawaddy that water Southeast Asia. So the tea plants or tea trees even are growing down in these areas. Um, and the uh, the tea leaves is Camellia sinensis. Uh, the tea leaves are harvested. Um, they're not processed in exactly the same way as normal black tea, um, uh, but they're packed in order to make this this long trip, which they've been making for hundreds of years, up into the Tibetan plateau. They're mm -hmm. packed into these very dense bricks, um, and so and then the bricks are packed into these big. Um, sort of cylindrical barrel shapes traditionally and loaded onto uh, donkey back and mule back and they make their way um, by what was called the um, the Southern Silk Road or Tea Horse Road up through these various mountain passes. And at some point they're transferred to yak back from uh, donkey back and they undergo this, what's called a post-fermentation process on the way. And huh. so all these microbes with this, you know, if you imagine this sort of not entirely dried block of packed laminated leaves, all these little nooks and crannies in it. So the microbes in it are aging it, creating this really rich um, umami, almost very slightly fishy flavor in this huh. tea. Um, so if you've heard of puar tea, the yeah. um, Tibetan tea is made with that. And often if you if you buy puar here in the U.S. or in China, um, you're getting a very high grade. What makes its way into Tibetan tea is usually a very low grade. 
um, because it's not, you know, enjoyed as part of this elaborate tea ceremony, but rather it is um, mixed in a blender with uh, butter and in fact salt as well. So what you get is this um, piping hot, super caffeinated, super salty, super buttery. Um, it's almost like a caffeinated soup you're drinking. And wow. Do they do can, they boil it first or are they putting the leaves into the blender? What goes on the tea side? Are they are they boiling it and then pouring the hot water into the blender or Sure. Well, what you've got is a uh, you actually um often the the leaves are boiled or or steeped in sort of Mm -hmm. water you move just off the fire so it's staying okay. nice and hot um so you chip away you have a special knife for this you use your knife to chip away the leaves in from your block uh, chip away a few of the leaves into the water and you get a nice uh rich tea um add salt uh melt some butter over the fire and then this all goes into so traditionally it would be like a little mini butter churn actually oh, so a big wow. piece of bamboo and a um, stick that you're churning inside it um uh, and nowadays, it's actually high-powered blenders. So what's one of the things you actually see in um, the towns that we go to, if you go into a hardware store or something, one of the key supplies that every rural family needs is one of these high-powered blenders to make butter tea. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, and people have actually done, um, uh, Serena Ahmed uh, has done some really interesting work on the... Um, phytochemicals and the nutritional value that's coming from something that on the face of it doesn't sound like it would be particularly healthy. But if you're um, in this cold uh, atmosphere and doing this extremely high intensity uh, calorie requiring work, um, she's shown how it can um, actually be, of course, a functional food. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, because you've got the you've got the fats from the yak butter and the stimulants from the tea and that's that's I don't know. It's I don't know how 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 delicious is it though to eat it's kind of fishy salty tea. Have yeah. you enjoyed it? I mean or is it it's an acquired taste, I'm guessing. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a magical thing. Some people say they can't stand it, but um but for me, if you're drinking this sort of experimentally on a hot day down in the city um at a you know restaurant banquet somebody hosts for you or something it does not taste great um but if it's you know four in the morning and you're rolling out of your tent on top of a mountaintop and have to get going for the day there's nothing that tastes better and it <laughs> really great. can power you through the entire day on top of a mountain that's great it's great well and that just depicts an amazing picture i think that um your work out in the field is something that you know, little kids would dream of someday of just being able to be out in these amazing, vast landscapes on top of the world. Um, can you tell us a bit more of what it's like to do field work as an ethnobotanist? And um, yeah, just kind of what is this day to day perspective like? Because I think that's something that you kind of see in the movies, but it's a bit dramatized. And so I think that would be really interesting to some of the audience. Well, for me, there is sort of a balance between the work I do as an ethnobotanist and the work I do as an ecologist. And mm -hmm. maybe the two halves are, are more similar than I think. But a lot of the work that I do as an ecologist is maybe partly because my dissertation project was in phenology. So looking at the timing of flowering of different plants. Um, and for phenology work, 
it requires just hours and hours and hours and days and months of field work. And so I did actually a lot of that work alone, relying on the help and and um, sort of counsel of a lot of other people, but actually doing sort of mountain hours alone. And um, in contrast, uh, a lot of the work that I, I do now as an ecologist, and I think really all of the work I do really as an ethnobotanist that's field work, um, is so reliant on other people. And um, I, you know, academics always like to sort of cite other people and make sure everyone gets their credit, and often it doesn't make for a good story. But I really think that the, um, that, you know, part of the story is this social network. So, mm. um, this network of uh, scientific collaborators that I can rely on. So um, in the case of my work in China, um, collaborators at the Shangri-La Alpine Botanic Garden who are able to mount these expeditions and have this incredible knowledge of the local flora and uh, have established connections with people in the local communities. Um, in the case of uh, my work in Nepal, uh, with Dr. Stresh Gamire and others at Tribhuvan University, where we go out with a team of um, master's students from Tribhuvan University. So this uh, incredibly diligent, hardworking group of Nepali students who, um, you know, often for them, because the cities in Nepal are at lower elevation, actually, often for them, it's their first time in the mountains, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it's really exciting for all of us to be there. Um, and then when I'm doing field work uh, for ethnobotany, um, a lot of this is interviews, right? Ethnobotany mm -hmm. is the ethno means people. It's the science of plants and people. And so you have to talk to people about how they're using these plants and how they're responding to changes in the environment that drives changes in the plants. And I think the, the one thing I really learned is how reliant I am on field assistants and co-investigators from the culture that I'm mm -hmm. working with or as yeah. close to it as I can find. And I think you probably found the same thing. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It to it's it's important, you know, to make everything even feasible or functional, but it's such an enriching experience to build these collaborations and have them go on in some cases for years, you know. Uh, I love that. Right. And you can see the and you can see the difference too. I'm mm -hmm. I was actually, my undergraduate degree was as a linguist. So um, I was, I've always harbored this sort of deep insecurity that I, I don't know other languages very fluently and don't know them well enough. And so I started off with this idea that I'll learn the languages I need to know and be able to do all my interviews myself. And then I realized the actual situation, which is that I could never learn all the languages I need to know to go into <laughs> these areas that a lot of the people I want to talk to, not only do I want to talk to them in their mother tongue and not a contact language like Chinese, I want to be talking to them in the specific dialect of Kham mm -hmm. Tibetan that they happen to use in this specific valley. Um, but a lot of them are older people. They're maybe hard of hearing. Um, and of course, as you say, there are these huge cultural benefits to just know how to approach a house and yes. how, how to deal with an angry barking Tibetan mastiff and <laughs> polite ways to ask a question or refuse a gift or accept a gift. Um, yeah. So yeah, I've really relied yeah. a lot on um, uh, especially younger people as field assistants because also then they're really interested to hear these answers too that we're getting when we ask the older generation about how they used to use or continue to use plants. And um, 
And also it gives this great incentive for informants to talk to you. If they're actually talking to someone from their own community or from their own culture and um, who's showing an interest in these things. Yeah, I find I find that the same thing. It often spurs additional internal interest and then other things within local cultural organizations come about because like, oh, mm-hmm. this is really interesting. Our our heritage is, is something we need to like record and, and do more with. And yeah, that's cool. Well, let's yeah. let's let's shift a bit now to some of those uh, the work that you've done then with home gardens. I think that's another interesting topic. Um, I don't know where you'd like to begin there. Well, so this actually came about um, in uh, actually in collaboration with uh, some students from uh, the Royal Botanical Garden Edinburgh who were mm-hmm. in China uh, with me as I was doing my dissertation research one year. And they're horticulturalists. They were training for a, a horticultural degree. And so they had this interest in gardening. And in this area of China we were in, so this is uh, Yunnan province in southwest China, um, there is uh, a tradition here, as there is in other places in China, of these courtyard houses. And they have specific uh, a specific architecture in this part of China um, where you have the house along one side and then um, either bits of the house on the two other sides um, and a wall on the fourth side or wall on the other three sides. So you have this very enclosed sort of indoor outdoor space of the courtyard. And in the area that I'm in, the local um, people uh, who are called the Nashi uh, have courtyards that are just famously full of plants, full of flowers Mm -hmm. um, in pots and raised beds growing up through cracks in the uh, patio. Um, hanging down from fruit trees they've planted, um, on plant stands from bits of wood they've brought in from the mountain. So it's really a a deep aesthetic tradition. Um, But when I got there, I just saw, ooh, look at this biodiversity. And look at this biodiversity in a really neatly tractable square X meter by Y meter plot that I have. <laughs> that's the ecologist um, in you speaking right there. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly. <laughs> I, I, I saw a plot that I could use and define. And honestly, I've kind of been scared of home garden work in other places because of that porous boundary of, you know, well, what's a what's part of the home and what's outside of the home and what if, would you get into the field but within these courtyard walls, I saw a project I could work on. Um, so basically, we went around with uh, local field assistants who were engaged and interested, um, uh, also with horticultural students, and in the end with um, uh, Kareem Sari Ahmed, at the time a student, now Dr. Kareem Sari Ahmed, a doctor, um, medical doctor, that is. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we surveyed every plant that was growing in these gardens we selected, um, asked about its name in Chinese if it was known, its name in the local Nashi language if it was known, uh, how it was used, and how people had come to get it there too, whether it had been collected from the wild or bought in the market. And um, we worked in villages across an urban-rural gradient. So one of the interesting things about this place is that Lijiang City is this big sort of touristy city um, with a lot of internal Chinese tourism, um, as well as the Nashi people who traditionally have lived there. Um, But in only a few kilometers, as you go up the mountain, you get to really rural areas, uh, villages that until recently didn't have permanent roads. 
And so um, we wanted to work across this urban-rural gradient to see the differences. And ultimately, we saw a lot of things that, that, really, that really surprised us. Um, okay, we did these interviews uh, in villages along a quite steep urban to rural gradient. So one of the interesting things about this area is that uh, Lijiang City itself um, is fairly large, not in a Chinese context large, but uh, um, in a village context, it is a sizable city. There's a lot of tourism, there's a lot of domestic Chinese tourism, but it goes over just a few kilometers up in the mountain. You get to some quite remote villages, villages that until recently have had no road access or still have no road access. Mm. And so we wanted to ask a few questions about some of the themes that are important in ethnobotany. Things like, um, does whether a plant is um, bought from the market or collected from the wild relate to how it's used? Mm. Do either of those things relate to um, uh, whether a plant's name in the indigenous Nashi language is known or whether people refer to it by a Chinese name? Um, do, do, does culture sort of overwhelm nature? That is, is the set of plants planted in these pretty controlled, environmentally controlled spaces, um, is it the same uh, across uh, an environmental difference? Or does the sort of nature-culture interface that's reflected in courtyard plants actually reflect the environment around it? So we found a lot of interesting things that I think, and some of them were quite surprising to me. So we, we did see... Um, that medicinal plants were much more likely to have been wild collected than bought at a market. And um, however, we saw the opposite for food plants, actually. When people were growing food plants, those were twice as likely to have been um, bought, bought from the market. And um, uh, this actually doesn't reflect uh, a category that showed up in the interviews that we weren't expecting to find, which is plants given as gifts. So. This ah. kept, kept showing up in people's responses. And um, in fact, when we totaled up the data, we found actually more plants that were gifted than either bought at the market or collected from the wild. So it was this, um, this third category. And I think it's really interesting because I think it rings true to our experience too, which is that you're much more likely to keep a plant around and try to keep it alive if it came <laughs> to you through a social network. Yeah. Um, oh, and, yeah. And, yeah, and so this sort of fell, in a lot of our metrics, this fell between um, uh, bought things and collected things, as you might expect, because the gift plants probably represent both sources, ultimately. Um, we did find a connection between uh, indigenous language and plant uses. So plants that had a, a name in the indigenous Nashi language were much more likely to be used as food or medicine. Mm -hmm. And we did find that uh, gardens had this very um, distinct sets of plants uh, along the environmental gradient. So that as you got into the higher elevation, more remote villages, there were distinct plants, species represented. And that um, these plants also were distinct in other ways. So there was a much higher percentage of useful plants. Uh, there was a much higher percentage of plants for which the indigenous Nashi name was known. Um, and that there was a higher percentage of wild collected plants in the most remote villages. But that this was also true of one of the neighborhoods in Lijiang City, actually. And um, this was 
surprising at first until we took a look at the neighborhood and we found out that it was one of the neighborhoods that had been um, actually the most converted into hotels and little shops and tourist attractions, uh, which meant that the people we were interviewing there were those perhaps with the um, with the most reason to stay. These were people who hadn't sold their land and and gone somewhere else, right? And so I think what we were seeing there was a sample set that was actually a little more biased towards essentially cultural holdouts, people who mm-hmm. were uh, interested in this and valued it and were more likely to uh, do more of this wild collection for their gardens, um, to know more of the uh, Nashi names and to plant more useful plants. That's great. That's great. Well, thinking, Robbie, on a on a broader context, I'm thinking of, of everyone that, that's listening to this episode. They might be thinking, well, these alpine plants are fascinating. The yak butter stuff is cool. But does that really mean anything to me in terms of climate change? And I think, you know, you're working with populations where climate change is make, having an immediate impact on. Um, what can you share with us? I mean, what do you think that the field of ethnobotany can offer to studies in climate change? Um, because this is something that is ultimately going to impact all of us. Um, and for most of it, it already does. The impact has already begun. Um, and so I think, and we've talked about this a lot offline of, of you know, this is kind of like, this is the time for scientists that understand resilience models, that understand how people are able to survive within very harsh environments, um, for them to shed light on, on the way forward. So I wonder if you could comment a little bit about that. Absolutely. And that's a really good point. And I, I totally agree with you. As, as you said, we've talked offline about it. But, um, you know, I think as ethnobotanists, um, we often end up working with people with a very close connection to the land mm-hmm. and a close mm-hmm. connection to the natural environment. And I think that by and large, those people also tend to have a very intimate connection to weather and to climate and that they're affected, especially in terms of the sorts of questions that we're asking them, they're intimately affected by weather and climate because of that. So, um, for instance, this uh, herder in Monaslu who had been paying close attention to the species composition of alpine grasses because Mm -hmm. it affected his livelihood as a yak herder. And the same thing we actually see around the world, right? There are are countless examples uh, from uh, you know, coral atoll islands to mm-hmm. um, uh, Arctic tundra, where we see that um, local people on the land are just intimate and accurate observers of natural phenomena. They're the first people affected by climate change. But what they're seeing is just this sort of um, first and most intimate and maybe sort of parsable and easy to tell a story about effects of this much broader thing that absolutely affects us all. And a lot of our food systems are much more hidden from us, right? You know, we don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to exactly what the climate conditions were last year and the place that our coffee beans were sourced from. But it definitely matters to us. uh, um, And it certainly matters when the uh, 
entire food system, say around those coffee beans, to pick one niche product, uh, is is disrupted. And um, I don't pick that uh, offhand. Coffee is one example where uh, there's been a lot of work showing um, big changes in where coffee can be grown, um, how economically supportable it is to grow, and how we're going to be able to sort of grow and consume that commodity in the future. Uh, of course, many other things that are dear to people's hearts are also intimately tied to climate. Yeah, so it's 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 crazy to think that crops like coffee, wine, and also bananas are at risk because of um, low biodiversity. We don't have that many varieties that are in cultivation, and also these climate threats, and those can cascade into you know fungal pathogens and rust that can destroy these crops. And um, where do we go from there? Like, what can we do as scientists? Um, as, as we look at these problems? Well, one thing, I, so I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is biodiversity, especially of um, the things that we plant. So some people have called this agrobiodiversity, so the biodiversity of an agricultural system. And I think it's something that can be taken, you know, very generally. And I think it's something that's perhaps rare in that it is something which is both poetically and thematically uh, useful, but also just true materially, which is that uh, more diverse systems are more resilient to change. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it maybe is one possible benefit of seeing these shocks or disruptions to the system, right, is that we're shown a good reason to maintain diversity within them. Um, so in the specific case of agrobiodiversity, what this means is uh, a renewed interest in maintaining um, diversity, uh, genetic diversity uh, within a crop, um, with maintaining uh, other uh, land races or varieties of a crop. So when you hear heirloom varieties, that's what this mm -hmm. is. Um, uh, and also with investigating what are called crop wild relatives, which are plants that may not be currently used as crops, but are closely enough related that they might contain traits, they might be valuable candidates for future hybridization or crossbreeding. Um, so the sort of uh, um, traditional methods for crop uh, um, you, you could say crop improvement, or you could say dynamic change and resilience within <laughs> crops. These sort of methods that have been used for uh, tens of thousands of years as humans have uh, worked to domesticate and manage and change the, um, the species that we eat. And so um, I, I think this is a really uh, fantastic field and I'm glad you brought it up because actually at the William L. Brown Center, um, we've just hired uh, Dr. Emily Warchewski whose entire focus is on this. She's an evolutionary biologist who studies uh, agrobiodiversity and crop wild relatives, um, has done some really seminal work on diversity within mangoes. And I, I really look forward to the work she's gonna do in the center with uh, other tree crops and, and other plants. That's great. Well, Robbie, where can people go to learn more about the work at the William Brown Center? Our website, wlbcenter.org, will take you to our webpage on the overall Missouri Botanical Garden website. And we are at Endowed Center under the umbrella of the um, broader Missouri Botanical Garden. So you'll be able to learn more about us and the gardens there. That's great. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Robbie. This was really enlightening. And I love the picture that you painted of, of these amazing um, Himalayan landscapes and yaks and yak tea. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Thanks for the fantastic questions, Cassie. It's always great to chat. Thanks. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this and many other episodes on our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find our episodes at Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button and also on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel where you can access videos of all of our episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.